So what I'd like to endeavor to do this evening is is once more to give some context to what we're doing here on a cushion and in our walking path. There is a verse from one of the early Buddhist texts that says, All that you are now is the result of what you were. What you will be tomorrow, or even more exactly, what you will be in the next moment, will be the result of what you are now. If it hasn't already happened, I think it's likely to happen, that at some point during these days here, the question's going to arise in your mind, what am I doing here? (laughs) Why am I doing this? You know, the relentless hours of sitting and walking with a body that at times feels very uncomfortable, with a mind that is uncooperative. I don't know if any of you have already had this particular scenario in your mind of going home and describing your retreat to a friend who's never been on retreat before, for whom this would make absolutely no sense at all. The the hours, the hours we do sitting and walking and sometimes even the disturbing awareness of how little we're really here anyway. You know, how much of the time that we're here, we're we're actually spending a lot of that time lost in a host of fantasies or worries or memories or rehearsals about the future or the various obsessions we can entertain And quite frankly, I think it's a really good question to ask of yourself. What am I doing here? To ask it not just once, but to remind ourselves over and over what it is that underlies the forms of what we're engaging in. Clearly, we are not here to achieve a perfectly concentrated mind. We are not here to pursue transcendent and exhilarating meditation experiences as nice as they might be. We're not here to become a perfect meditator. That we are here essentially to understand the way to bring about a very profound inner transformation of heart and mind. What we are doing here is learning to become increasingly sensitive to the thoughts, the beliefs, the attitudes that create our world. We're here to find the ways in our own experience to bring about the end of suffering through understanding how struggle and sorrow is caused. Certainly we're here to learn the lessons time and time again of peace, of kindness, of compassion. To come to understand how it is that we actually come to be all that we are 
now. And through that understanding, how we may be tomorrow. How we may even be in the next moment. There are a lot of lessons that we learn in the context of this practice. Sometimes they, they're lessons that are learned on almost a subliminal level. They're not lessons that are learned through, you know, great flashes of headline insight, you know, with lots and bells of bells and smells. You know, there's almost this quiet deepening of understanding that sometimes this process of transforming our hearts can be so subtle Sometimes we don't even know shifts have happened until we we once more go into our world and find that we can be in that world with a greater sense of peace, with a greater kindness, a greater compassion. We come, we are here because how else do we learn to calm the roller coaster of our own mind except to be with it? How do we find the, the courage and the balance to live in this fragile and uncertain world without being lost, except by our willingness to meet it. We are here to find the ways to bring about the end of struggle and confusion, and essentially to discover that which is beautiful and lovely and free within ourselves. I think we keep turning up because at some point in our lives we realize there isn't a real alternative. Hmm? That the option of divorcing ourselves, estranging ourselves, avoiding, camouflaging are really not options that are very effective and something in us knows that. We start to know that so deeply that we, we turn up because we're human and because we're alive. Nagarjuna, one of the great poets in this tradition, he, he once says, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? And, you know, we try to do a lot with it, don't we? Sometimes we try. We have tried probably the strategies of flight, of rejection, of denial, of protection, of floundering. And then there comes that moment when it really, really occurs to us that what is asked of us is learn to learn how to be present in this life in a fearless and in a wise way. And maybe we also come to understand there's really not so much life that we flee from. That what we really f- flee from is, is the painfulness of suffering and struggle and confusion that we're really trying to run from. The entire path of mindfulness, certainly as I understand it, and I'm sure as you, the ways that you share it with others, that the entire path of mindfulness is dedicated not to running from pain, but to understanding it. Let's see essence of this path. This path is dedicated not to constructing some idealized inner state where we are disassociated from life's challenges, but the entire path of mindfulness, as we understand it and as we teach it, is about embracing our life, embracing our body, our mind, and to find freedom within the difficult, not outside of it necessarily. 
Certainly, as I've been taught this practice, um, the, the, the meditative path is, is, re- is a response to a very timeless dilemma. It's not a Buddhist dilemma. It is a very human dilemma. You know, 2,600 years ago, you know, this young man, Siddhartha, as many people have done over the centuries, this young man, Siddhartha, looked at his life, he looked at his mind, and he faced the inescapable reality that the threads of disappointment ran through the fabric of his life. By very, by most standards, Siddhartha had actually had a pretty good life. You know, he had status, he had possessions, he had a relationship, he had countless pleasant experiences, he had a lot of safety, and yet he was aware of this kind of dichotomy that d- despite having all of this, that there remained within him this kind of low-level ache of disquiet. Born of an awareness that he was still subject to, to a discontented and at times very unreliable mind. That the happiness that came to him was not always enduring. That peace was sometimes elusive. That life didn't always live up to his expectations. And I think we, we actually hear the echoes of Siddhartha's awareness and discovery in our own lives. You know, how often does disquiet erupt into our consciousness in the form of disappointment? We often experience, and this is a disappointment, experiencing this kind of recurrent mismatch between how we imagine ourselves and others and the world to be, or how we imagine ourselves and others and the world should be, and how things actually are. This is the essential mismatch, the essential misalignment. We're we're sometimes puzzled when our expectations and desires, even when they are met, don't quite deliver the sublime peace and enduring pleasure we imagine. And beneath, I think we all know this, beneath our busyness and our strategies and in our endeavors, to create for ourselves and those that we love a secure and a protected world, we all know that we stand on shifting sands. And we all know in some ways that everything could crumble in a moment. Now, Siddhartha's awareness of this and his response to those understandings was not to sink into despair or depression, which is certainly one option, but in a very real way, disappointment or the awareness of disappointment was for Siddhartha the very beginning of his search for an understanding to to discover a way of being in this life where there was a quality of inner freedom a quality of inner confidence and trust. 
And the cornerstone, the cornerstone not only of all Buddhist teaching, but the cornerstone of all mindfulness-based applications rests upon (coughs) what are called the four ennobling truths. And they are called ennobling because an understanding of them brings into our lives a quality of inner dignity and completeness and freedom. So the four ennobling truths, acknowledging that there is unsatisfactoriness in life, acknowledging that there is a cause, acknowledging that there can be an end of suffering, and acknowledging that there is a way to the end of suffering. In fact, when when asked to summarize his teaching, the Buddha said, I teach just one thing, that there is suffering and there is an end to suffering. So this evening I particularly want to look at these first two ennobling truths because they have, of course, not only so much to do with, with our own lives and our own practice, But in a very real way, they are so much the cornerstone of everything that all of you bring into clinical applications and into teachings of mindfulness-based applications. And much of what is so (coughs) implicit, I think, in mindfulness-based applications, of course, in this teaching, is so explicit. And I think it is helpful to, to just have... This, this framework of information, this framework of understanding, to understand really how it does inform the, the spirit of actually what is brought into other environments. So let us look at this first ennobling truth. Now, the Buddha put it very simply, there is dukkha in life. Dukkha is a Pali word. Now, I would like you just to hear that word and just to put it on one side for a moment because I don't, so many of our translations are so inadequate about dukkha. Okay? So if we can just put it on one side for one moment and then in a moment I'm going to return to it and explain my understanding of what dukkha means. But what the Buddha said, there is dukkha in life and that each of our lives without exception is entwined with dukkha. And as the Buddha said it, dukkha is to be understood. Not to be gotten rid of. Dukkha is to be understood because through understanding dukkha, we will find the way to bring about the end of suffering. Okay, so let's return to this word dukkha. Now there's a lot of translations One of the translations that I really, really dislike (laughs) is is this statement that life is suffering. You know, that dukkha is translated as suffering, the statement that life is suffering. I don't think the Buddha ever taught that. Okay. Suffering and pain is one aspect of dukkha. Sometimes it's translated as unsatisfactoriness, My understanding of dukkha is that it is describing the essential and essentially describing the intrinsic instability of all experience. 
It is describing the fundamental insecurity of all experience. Now that this instability is simply the nature of all phenomena, of everything that we can experience. And this essential instability is in itself neither good nor bad, nor right nor wrong, but simply the way things are. And it is apparent to all of us when we look at anything in the world, anything that we have, anything we experience, if we look within our own inner experience and everything that can arise there, what we see is this instability. But instability is not dukkha in or suffering in itself. But the instability of experience is liable to suffering, hmm? is vulnerable to suffering. I will go into this. When it is not understood. So life and the nature of life is liable to suffering when it is misperceived, when it is not embraced, not accepted, not seen clearly. So essentially the misperception of instability or the resistance to the intrinsic instability in, li- in all things leads us to suffer, to struggle, to feel puzzled, to feel bemused, to feel helpless. So what is actually being talked about here is this essential misalignment that can happen. That as long as there is a gap between the way things actually are and our view of how things should be, as long as there is a misalignment between those two, then we are liable to suffer. That's the kind of simple kind of premise here. So dukkha... Dukkha, and I'm going to use this word because I just don't have one word in English that translates it properly. Dukkha essentially has three dimensions. And all of our lives are actually entwined with these dimensions. You know, there's not one of us who stands outside of them and somehow says, I'm exempt. All of our lives are entwined with these three dimensions of Dukkha. Okay, so let us look at the first one, the first dimension of dukkha the Buddha talked about, apparent to all of us. Painful experiences in body and mind. Hmm? Living in a body, being born into a body that with time will age, will become frail, is vulnerable to illness, will die. Being born into living in a body that feels hunger, that feels thirst, that feels injury, the difficult sensations that come with being embodied. Our minds and hearts also have their own measure of painful feelings, loss and grief and sorrow and sadness. It is the nature of loving. It's the nature of caring. It's the nature of being human, feeling connected, is actually to be vulnerable to loss and to sadness. It's part of our personal story, 
This is part of the universal story, the stories of all beings who are born, who live, who live in a fragile body. I think one of the, the timeless stories that really comes from this tradition, and many of you will be familiar with it, you know, and it's, it, many of these stories are really meant to be a teaching, to be teaching stories and to encourage us to see ah, ourselves in the eyes and in the steps and in the lives of another. And one of these stories is a story about Kisa Gotami, who was a young woman in India whose child died. And in despair and in distress and distraught, she went to the Buddha, cradling her dead child in her arms, asking and pleading with the Buddha for him to bring her, if he was so, you know, so saintly, so wise, to, to bring her child back to life. And the Buddha could see, you know, there, there was, it would be of no help to give an easy answer, you know, to say this is not possible to do it, you know, just accept this. Instead, the, the Buddha asked Kisagotami to go into the village and to knock at the door of every house and, and to, when someone answered, to ask them, has someone died here? And, and if they could find, if she could find, a house where no one had died, to, to come back to the Buddha with a, a mustard seed from that house. And, of course, it was not possible to do this. And it's, it's said that in, in that experience, Kisugotami's, her own grief was not diminished. Her own sense of loss was not lessened. That is a very, it was very personal to her, but she understood the size of the cloth. That... Sorrow is part of being alive. That sorrow is part of loving. Loss is part of loving. This is, of course, this is an old story, but I don't know how many of you have ever spent time, uh, if you've ever had the, 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 the pleasure of ever having to do these sort of hospital circuits, you know, where, where you go into these clinics. You ever go in a hospital? He's filled with really sick people, you know. Hundreds, hundreds. And have you ever had that experience when you're home alone, you know, and you're ill, you know, and, and, and you feel the sort of contractedness of your, you know, your, your own pain and your own kind of struggle with being ill. And then you go into a hospital and if you open your eyes, it's like this, wow, this is life. You know, this is, this is what it means to be human. And somehow there's that sense of, you know, just that kind of opening into the more universal story, not lessening the personal story, but somehow a little bit of a calming of the heart is to know this is what it means to be alive. So the painful sensations, the painful experiences of body and mind are one dimension of dukkha. That is pain. The second dimension of dukkha, or, or no, the second characteristic of life, which is liable to suffering. Okay, so the second characteristic of life, which is liable to suffering, is the reality of impermanence. The intrinsic changing nature 
of all things. The winds of change that ripple through all experience and all of our lives as surely as night follows day. The, the lovely toddler turns into the surly teenager. The parent you might have lent on for support throughout your life is suddenly the parent who is leaning on you. And you see there, there in some ways, their frailty reflected in, in, in your own frailty reflected in their eyes. Friends come into our lives. Sometimes they leave. Sometimes they're no longer friends. People we love die. Arguments and conflicts that felt so intense for a time and overwhelming sometimes become distant memories. The experiences of the lovely, the pleasant, delightful, they too change into something else. A thought arises, disappears. How many thoughts have you had today? Where are they now? How many sensations have you had today? How have they changed? You know, how many memories or images have risen into your mind today and now disappeared? The body sensations that we thought would last forever somehow release their grip. The emotions, both the lovely and the unlovely, it's like they have this message written on them just passing through. You know, just here for a time. The sunset we delight in fades. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. It really only takes a little bit of attention to know the intrinsic truth of impermanence in the lovely and the unlovely. And we don't stand outside of that truth. Our whole life, our bodies, our minds, everything we have done, everything we have loved, everything we have hated, everything we have experienced, the whole of our life clearly is interwoven with and entwined with the reality of impermanence. Again, this is not good nor bad. It's not right. It's not wrong. It is simply the way things are. And paradoxically, the only constant in our life is change. Now, the third domain of existence, which is liable to suffering, vulnerable to suffering, lies within the reality of all conditioned phenomena. Now, every moment in our day, isn't it so that our bodies, our minds, our emotions are being impacted and influenced by the world of conditions we live in? That every moment we are making an impact upon the conditions around us in our, through our actions, our speech. You know, the, we, the person beside us sneezes and suddenly we have the flu. You know, we leave our shoes on the ramp outside and our neighbor stumbles over them. We could be the most accomplished meditator in the world and still get a life-threatening disease. We could be the worst meditator in the world and win the lottery. You know, you come on retreat and you have these plans for long country walks, you know, and it rains, you know, the train is late. 
our much-anticipated reunion with an old friend falls flat. The reality is that no matter how much we plan and how much we rehearse and how much we pay attention and how mindful we are, life can derail it all. The world of conditions can derail it all. And there's so many moments in our life when we suddenly realize, actually, we are just not in control of the conditioned nature of phenomena. Okay, so this is the landscape of the first ennobling truth. There is pain in body-mind experience. There is impermanence. There is the reality that all conditioned phenomena are uncontrollable, not within our control. Now, this is, understand, this is not a denial of joy. It's not, you know, it's not a teaching of misery. You know, it's not an invitation for us all to become depressed and throw our hands up in the air, you know, and say, well, why bother at all, you know. But actually, you know what? Impermanence and essential instability also runs through the lovely. What does this ask for? Acceptance, balance, acknowledgement, uprightness. Now, dukkha is sometimes translated as unsatisfactoriness. And we could certainly say, you know, like when your body is aching and your heart is breaking, this is really un- feels really unsatisfactory and disquieting. We could say that impermanence and instability of conditions is unsatisfactory, but it's only an unsatisfactory in that it is incapable. Anything that is impermanent and subject to conditions is incapable of providing lasting happiness and peace and security. The Buddha said that dukkha is to be understood. And dukkha begins with our, with our willingness to be mindful of the actualities of pain, of impermanence, of changing conditions in our hearts, lives, and minds. To know them, to meet them with kindness and with mindfulness rather than fleeing because these are the strategies that don't work to say life is unfair, you know, to blame ourselves or others, to become agitated, to endlessly try and fix everything. These are the strategies that don't work. So why are these marks of existence, pain, impermanence, conditions, They're simple truths about life. They're kind of like essential, existential core truths of life. So why or when do they become liable to suffering? What point do they become vulnerable to suffering? Because when we speak about suffering, in this tradition, I'm sure in most of your work, when we speak about suffering, we're really speaking about the complex emotional and psychological reactions to life's core realities. We're talking about how we react to pain, to change, to instability. This is what we're talking about when we talk about suffering. 
So take a simple example of that. You know, you've got a pain in your neck. You've got a pain in your knee. You've got a pain in of illness. So what actually happens with that? Well, there is the pain, of course, and there is the reaction to the pain. Hmm? So suffering is covering that spectrum of reactions. It says it's not fair, this shouldn't be here, I want it to go away, how do I suppress it, how do I get out of it? This is actually what the suffering is. So this kind of reaction to life's core realities, in the Buddhist teaching it is called dukkha dukkha, or double dukkha. Give you an example, you walk outside, quite mindful, and you stub your toe on a stone. It wouldn't matter if you were a Buddha. It would still hurt. Being a Buddha does not give you an invulnerable toe. It would still hurt. So there is that actuality, that reality of pain. But we have powerful reactions, as we know it, to pain or even to the intimation of pain. Basically, it shouldn't be happening to me. It shouldn't be happening to me. This is unacceptable. How many times have you heard that story in your work? This shouldn't be happening to me. It is unacceptable. It might last forever. I can't bear it. Think about how it is if you're sitting with pain in your knee. You know, how often you can feel that surge, can't you, of how do I get rid of it? Or, of course, there is the other, a couple of other options. One is that you become a peeper. You know, a peeper is a person who very discreetly keeps an eye on their watch as they're kind of biding their way through the pain. You know, can I get another five minutes, you know, ten minutes, you know, that's all I have to do. Or else you become heroic, you know, I'm going to outsit the pain. You know, and I saw this in my early years in practice, you know, when there was a certain nobility given to outsitting pain. You know, I've seen people carried out of meditation rooms locked in full lotus positions that they are unable to get their legs out of for hours because they are so cramped into these postures. But they have this weird smile on their face as they're carried out of the meditation room, locked into a full lotus, you know, like, I did it. You know, I did it, the pain, you know, I, I outdid the pain. These small successes make up our lives, don't they? <laughs> or perhaps we become judgmental. You know, I just can't do this. Everybody else is sitting like a Buddha. You know, I'm not up to the task. And we see how often the unpleasant sensation opens the door, of course, for this onslaught of fear and resistance and judgment. And sometimes in it, we hear all the old stories, don't we? I've never been able to do this. You know, I've never been up to the scratch. You know, I've never been competent. You know, my incapacity, my failure. So here we see it so clearly, the two levels of dukkha. The one level is the actuality of the pain. 
The second is the reaction to that actuality. This is what we teach in MVCT and MBSR all of the time. Now, that second level of pain, of the reaction, actually sometimes is far more painful and tormenting than the first. And I think it was Freud who said that 25% of pain in life is unavoidable and the other 75% of pain of life is created through trying to avoid the first 25%. We can see that level of torment in the mind as we try to avoid. So what we are sensing in that reactivity to pain is again this essential, this kind of core misalignment between what is and our view of what should be happening. It's essential kind of fault line there. Now, throughout Buddhist psychology, it's recognized again and again that pain and the reaction of fear are so closely interwoven No, absolutely it's human not to want pain. And nobody is asked to like pain. The simple, but simply to recognize that to flee from pain is not only to solidify the pain often, but it is to reinforce the habit pattern of flight. And in in reinforcing the habit pattern of flight, we are reinforcing the belief system of incapacity. Quite frankly, flight, and I'm not saying it's never wise or useful to step away from the painful, because sometimes it is. But the habitual pattern of flight is a little bit like a vote of no confidence in ourselves, in our capacity to meet our life unconditionally and to make wise choices, which is sometimes a choice actually to step away from pain. Now, the path of, of, of mindfulness that we're doing here, that we teach others, suggests that there is another way other than flight. Um, that there is the possibly, possibility of actually turning towards what we flee from. The interesting thing in doing that is, is bringing about the, the loosening of the sense of imprisonment. Because it, I don't know if you've noticed in your experience, what you flee from, you feel very imprisoned by. It's sitting there in the background of your consciousness. Can't be with this. You actually feel very imprisoned by it. Turning towards in mindfulness practice is not only about just being with what is. It's about something to do with this shift inwardly from helplessness to confidence, from incapacity to capacity, from inability to meet to capacity to meet. Something to do with ending fear. Something to do with ending fear. Mindfulness in that constant befriending with kindness, with compassion, is the beginning of being able to recognize pain as pain. Not to dismiss it, not to judge it, but simply to open our eyes and our hearts to what is present. You know what's happening when we're doing that? When there's this misalignment between what is and our view, we suffer. 
when we actually turn our attention to what is, what we're actually doing about is bringing a greater sense of alignment between what is and our understanding of what is. That is the lessening of the suffering. So we can begin to explore the landscape of pain, to look beneath the concepts, to look how things change, not as a way, some wonderful magic formula to make pain go away, but to really begin to understand there can be pain without suffering. And we see how one of the most important works, important pieces that mindfulness does is to sever the link between the unpleasant experience and the underlying tendency of fear and aversion. That that is the most significant link, a step in, in mindfulness practice, is to cut that link between the unpleasant experience and the underlying tendency of aversion and fear. And every time we do this, every time we're able to do this, we're seeing for ourselves in our own experience the truth of there is suffering and there is an end to suffering. There may still be pain, but the second layer of suffering, of course, is more optional. So, the Buddha taught so clearly that to know the end of suffering, we do need to understand its causes. And its cause, as the Buddha put it, is what is called in Pali, tanha, our unquenchable, thir- unquenchable thirst or craving. Now, being aware, again, this is not a dismissal of all the wholesome and practical desires that we need to get us through our life. Tanha is something different. Craving is something different the way we use it as a cause of suffering. And I think this is not something to endorse or dismiss as a theory. This is something to really check out in our own experience. So John was talking a little bit about this this morning. You know, So craving has these two faces, doesn't it? First, there is the craving to get, to have, to possess, to keep, to maintain. This usually arises in relationship to the pleasant experience, by the way. In, in America, you know, they, they have this, this horrible, gooey um, thing they make where they, they put cookies and marshmallows together and bake them, and it comes out in this incredibly gooey, sweet confection. And they call it Moorish that if you have a bite of this, you always want more. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think out of your mind, if that's what you want. But, but, but anyway, that's how it's called. It's called Moorish. So lots of things in America get called Moorish. You know, if it's good, you want more. So it's Moorish. Well, this is a new word for tanha, you know, for craving, Moorish. Which arises in relationship to the pleasant, and usually the strengthening of that, of course, that, that craving to get, to want, to keep, to maintain, is, is grasping and clinging and holding very tightly. Now the other face of craving, which usually arises in the un- face of the unpleasant, is what I would call lessish. You know, we don't want more-ish. We want less, less-ish of this, you know. Less of this unpleasant sound, thought, person, you know, experience. We want it to go away. The world of aversion, rejection, dismissal, annihilation. 
Now, if we so so interesting to you know to be unembarrassed about craving, and it's very important to be unembarrassed about craving, you know, because if we look at what our minds are doing through the day, we see how often we're caught in this tension of moving towards something moreish or moving away from something lessish. Hmm? And it's a kind of tension, you know, it can be around food, it can be around a sound, it can be around a, a fantasy, to pursue, to push away, to pursue, to push away. And of course, then there's the whole middle ground, which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which we basically ignore, or do our best to ignore-ish. <laughs> keep, it, keep, keep it consistent here. Now, if you notice, there is a whole host of belief systems. When we probe this a little bit more carefully, there is a whole host of belief systems that underlie craving and aversion. There's a belief system that I can only be happy and safe and content in the midst of the pleasant experience, and that the unpleasant experience is equated with being unhappy the belief that my sense of self will wither away or disappear, whereas my sense of self will thrive and shine in relationship to the pleasant. So it's not like Tanha is just some kind of free-floating you know, impulse pushing towards or pushing away. It's so tied up with these belief systems of what is possible for me. That if I have a succession of pleasant experiences in my life, somehow I'm a success. And if I have a succession of unpleasant experiences in my life, somehow I'm a failure. Now, there's a lot of identity caught up in this. We don't want to be the person who can't follow two breaths in a row. Because that wouldn't mean I'm a failure as a meditator. Mm-hmm. So then I bounce into trying to be the person who has more than two breaths in a row because then I'm a success. You know, and if I can't follow two breaths in a row and I'm a failure, then you know, it just kind of fits right in you know, with the fact that my partner rejected me and my children aren't successful and... And, you know, everything has always failed, and there you go. And if I manage to get two breaths in a row, that means I'm lovable and things are going to go really great in my life. Now, what the Buddha said, he said, the mind which is not, which is imprisoned, the mind which is lost in craving and aversion is the mind in which suffering will inevitably arise. And the mind that is not lost in craving and aversion is the mind in which suffering comes to an end. To me, one of the great gifts of this practice and this teaching, you know, whether it's on retreat or whether it's in, in more therapeutic systems and situations, to me, one of the great blessings is, is that coming to understand that Anxiety and the fears of insufficiency and unhappiness and depression are not life sentences. 
that we're not fated to be endlessly lost in turmoil and, and torment. And we come to know that, that the degree to which freedom and happiness and suffering comes into, uh, come, sorry, we come to know the way in which the degree of freedom and happiness we can experience is the degree to which we can relinquish this grip of being caught in craving and aversion, which again is simply an argument with the way things are. Now craving is not just about experiences, I mentioned. It's about identity, the craving to become and the craving for non-existence. Of course we want to become rich and lovable and acceptable and successful, you know, and in that craving to become, there lies a world of envy and comparison and evaluation. We want to become soft in something other than who we are. Leaning into the next moment, this moment never good enough. But that craving to become is also so much tied up with the craving for non-becoming, the most extreme of which is suicide. Where we can feel so disillusioned with ourselves, can feel so helpless, so poor, that our lives feel so pointless. You know, where a person can feel so overwhelmed by chronic pain or illness or by difficult emotions that they just want life to go away. They just want to disappear or feel flooded with aversion for life itself. Now, this is dukkha. There is the suffering of the felt experience, but it's also where that that suffering is a reaction, that suffering is often a reaction to the essential actualities of change and instability and conditions. It's like craving is an argument. I think of craving and aversion as being an argument. It's an argument the way things actually are. I don't like this, you know, so I want it to go away. It shouldn't be this way. I want more of this. This isn't good enough. It should be like this. It's like craving is this ongoing argument with, with the way things actually are. And we don't actually always see it. So what are life's core actualities teaching us? Well, you know, what is impermanence teaching us? that clinging and grasping are a prescription for suffering. Hmm? That impermanence is not suffering, but it is liable to suffering because when there is clinging and grasping. Hmm? You know what clinging and grasping is? It's trying to make the impermanent permanent. It's a pretty difficult task. I would say almost doomed to failure. Doesn't stop us trying. Hmm? Impermanence tells us we don't always get what we want, that disappointment is not necessarily a terrible thing. That disappointment is actually asking us to question our views of how things should be how we rely upon our expectations for well-being and happiness, and perhaps it's within ourselves. Impermanence tells that even us when we get what we want, somehow, satisfaction fades. 
and some of you have heard me tell this story before, but Yusuf and I teach in Switzerland in this most remarkable center, you know, the meditation room windows overlook the Alps, you know, it's absolutely stunning. A few years ago, I was teaching there, and of course, a yogi was relating to me like everyone does there, her, their amazement at how glorious this place was. You know. Came back the next year and said to me, you know, this isn't as beautiful as I remember it. <laughs> now, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I mean, we, we all know things change, but, you know, the Alps don't change that fast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> so there's something about how even craving is sabotaging because we can't see anew when we have this view of how things should be or how they were. And the world of unstable conditions is unacceptable to crave it, to, to craving. So we try to control. And when we feel, fail, we feel out of control. The cause of suffering can be understood. And when we see the causes of suffering, we can find the way to its end. Learning to step out of the argument with the world. Have you noticed whenever you start to argue with the world of conditions how you instantly suffer? You know, my neighbor sitting beside me is shuffling and restless. You know, oh, they shouldn't be like that, you know. They're just shuffling and restless, you know. My cushion is hard, you know. There's got to be a better cushion. I don't like this cushion. We're instantly suffering, you know. It's it's like we're, we do, we're doing it. You know, I remember years ago, you may have noticed, we have a lot of rooks here in the trees. Remember years ago, someone coming to me and saying, I cannot meditate with the rooks here. You know, like they make too much. They said, would you move the rooks? <laughs> Like we're instantly, I mean, it sounds like ridiculous, doesn't it? But I'm sure we've done equally kind of things like this. You know, where we're saying the world of conditions is creating my unhappiness. The rooks are actually just being rooks. You know, my unhappiness is to do with my argument with the rooks. Please be aware this is not a prescription for passivity in life. It's not a prescription for uh, never undertaking wise action, for never initiating changes or bringing about changes. But there's a very, very big difference between wise action, which is intentional action, which is addressing what is, and this argument that with what is that says the way things are is making me unhappy. Or it's actually my, my argument is making me deeply unhappy. We do learn, we do learn a little bit more patience. We do learn more allowing. We do learn to be with what is to hold a little bit more lightly, a little bit more spaciously. Some of this craving and aversion, the views. And you know, we do learn in this practice moment to moment, I think. It's a whole process of bringing into a greater alignment that which has been misaligned. It's bringing into this greater sense of alignment the way things are and our being with them and seeing them the way they are. That which has previously been misaligned becomes aligned and in many ways that is when suffering really begins to ease. We talk about the value of being present and it's not—it's much something much more than a cliché. You know, when we can really see that all that we are now is a result of what we were, 
then we can really see the significance, the importance of being where we are now. Because that is so pivotal. Because that, oh, that is the only moment, that is the only moment where we are now, where we can bring into alignment what has been misaligned. And then where we are now, being aligned with what is, with the changing nature, being able to embrace pain with compassion, being able to embrace impermanence with grace, being able to step out of the argument with the world of conditions that we cannot always control, being able to embrace all of that with mindfulness, with care, with understanding, then that is the ground of what we are tomorrow. That is the ground even of what we are in the next moment. And we do see that the degree of alignment that we have in this life That is the degree of freedom and happiness and well-being. That is actually where suffering comes to an end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.